Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered in partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. A couple years back, I decided I wanted to su uh, surprise Jenna on her birthday with a surprise birthday party, which normally she doesn't like surprises, but I figured there's no better way to show someone you love that other people love them too than to, than, you know, by all hiding in a room in the dark and jumping out and making them wet themselves. Uh, I mean, really, what is better than that? That's not what happened. What happened was I enlisted the help of a bunch of friends, uh, some who delayed her, you know, until the party was ready, some who helped me set up the yard with lights and games, some who helped me prepare all the food, some who even, like, stayed up all night long to smoke brisket and pulled pork for us. Uh, it was great, and when Jenna was driven by and saw all these people in the yard and kind of had that look on her face like, this is not what I was expecting, right? It's the best look. I was, I was so thrilled that we had pulled it off. And then she goes around and greets all of our guests in my absolute favorite moment. It's after she greets everyone, she comes over to me and she whispers in my ear real loud with like this, I cannot believe this is happening voice. She goes, Fred Rescorla is at my house, at my house. That guy's been on TV commercials. <laughs> if you don't know Fred, Fred's one of our elders here and a pediatric surgeon and occasionally shills for Riley Children's Hospital. Um, I don't even know if Fred's here, but anyway, there's the shout out. So we had this, this great time together with family, with friends, and at the end of it, after our last few friends had, had left, and left behind all the trash, we, Jen and I were standing there just kind of looking at the, the destruction of a great party, and Jenna just sighed real big and said, I am so thankful for what we have and who we get to share it with. And I thought, man, do, do you need anything else in life than what you have and who you get to share it with? Gosh, I wish that were true. I wish it were true, but every time I take a look at my own behavior, I realize how much of what I do is about getting more. I don't know. Do you see that in yourself? Like, I'm so thankful for what we have, and I'd be real thankful if we had just a little bit more. <laughs> I'm, I'm so thankful for who we get to share it with. 
And I'd be even more thankful if there were a few more people who were really trying to get in here into this party. You know, we're always in pursuit of more, more stuff, more things, more whatever. Or we're in pursuit of most, being most liked, most desirable, most appreciated, most recognized. If it were true that having enough and having people to share it with was really all it took to be happy, then this probably wouldn't be a question, you know, the question of what does it take to be happy. This wouldn't be a question that humans have argued about for literally thousands of years. And yet we have. And the Apostle Paul is no different. He actually jumps into this conversation right here at the end of Philippians. We've spent the last couple of weeks going through this letter, kind of verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, looking at, at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, a church he had a special relationship with. And this Sunday is the last Sunday we're going to spend looking at a couple of verses in particular. Next Sunday, Pastor Tom's going to be up here. He's going to preach through the entire book, tie the whole thing together for us. should only take three or four hours. It's going to be great. In this passage, uh, Philippians 4, 10 through 20 or so, we see Paul jumping into this age-old question of what does it take to be happy, but he comes to it with a different perspective, or maybe I should say a different foundation, than anyone has really addressed this question before. And as we finish up our explanation of this letter, right, he, Paul's finally getting back to the point with which he started the letter, saying, thank you for the gift that you sent. And then he couldn't help himself. He kind of went on for three or four chapters about other things that they needed to think about and do and put into practice and imitate and all of that. And now he's back again saying, by the way, I wrote this letter as a way to say thanks. But even in the midst of that thank you, he tackles this sort of common cultural understanding of what it means to have enough and what it means to have the people you share it with. He tackles both of these sort of basic cultural narratives or understandings, and he transforms them with the story of the gospel. It's really fascinating to watch it happen, so hopefully you can jump in here with me. We're going to start right away in verse 10 and begin by tackling this idea of what does it mean to have enough? What does it take to have enough? So join me here, Philippians 4.10. Paul begins... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And don't read this backwards. He's not saying, gosh, finally, thanks, guys. You remembered I'm in prison. No, he's actually rejoicing. This is the only place in any of Paul's letters where he quantifies his happiness, where he says, I rejoiced greatly. I, I was overwhelmingly excited when I received your gift because it means that our, our friendship, our, our partnership, your concern for me has finally re-blossomed. After a long winter's dormancy, he's like, I'm seeing evidence of new life again in your concern for me. And our, he calls it a partnership farther down, but we'll get to that in a bit. I'm so thrilled to see your concern again. He says, I, look, I know you were indeed in concern for me. I know you were concerned, but you had no opportunity. Maybe they didn't have the means. Maybe they didn't have the ability to get stuff to Paul. Maybe they didn't even know where he was and how they could help. But whatever it was, they didn't have the opportunity. Now they do. And Paul says, I'm thrilled that you've revived your concern for me. But he caveats it immediately. Because he doesn't want them to be confused. He's not thrilled by the gift. He's thrilled by the relationship. 
right? This is the same tension you have at Christmas when your kids are super excited that grandma's here. Because it's not necessarily so much that grandma's here, but that grandma's here and her car has a U-Haul attached to it full of presents. <laughs> not autobiographical at all. So he's, he's saying, okay, hold on, let me clear this up. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's like, I'm not saying, hey, I was so thrilled to get your gift because finally I can eat. And that might have actually been true. It may have very well been the case that he hadn't been able to eat until he got their gift. We don't know. But he says, look, I'm so thrilled to get your gift. Not, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then he starts to tackle this question of what does it mean to have enough? And he does it in a really interesting way. He begins by almost verbatim quoting Stoic philosophy. So welcome to Philosophy 101. What is Stoicism? You've probably heard the word Stoic before, right? It's a word that we use when we describe somebody who's facing difficulty and doesn't let their feelings show, you know, stiff upper lip and all that. Keep calm and carry on, right? That's, that's what it means to be Stoic. But when I say Paul's quoting Stoic philosophy, I mean Stoic with a capital S, so the actual philosophical system or, or the way of life. He says in verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. One commentator calls this a meteor straight out of the stoic sky. It's like Paul is, is quoting stoicism, which was all the rage in the decades around which he wrote this letter in the, the Greco-Roman world. Now, stoicism was not just a, a way of thinking. It was a way of life. It was a way of looking at all of the, the good things in the world, health, prosperity, fame, friendship, and on and on. It was a way of looking at all of these good things and saying, even if I don't have them, I'll be okay. Like, they're good, but they're not good in and of themselves. What's really good is to be, and this is the highest Stoic virtue, every young Stoic was just trying to get their life to line up with this principle. What's really good is to be self-sufficient. Okay, so the Stoic is the person who says, even if I don't have any of those good things, I have myself, and I'm enough. Okay, so the Stoic is the person who can stand in the storm that's whirling around them, the storm of life, and just sort of shout at the sky, the cold never bothered me anyway. <laughs> right, or any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. This is the Stoic perspective. Take it all away, I'm fine, because I have me. And the word they used for self-sufficient is the word that in the ESV is translated content. Paul sounds just like a Stoic when he says in verse 11, I'm not actually speaking of being in need. Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be self-sufficient. I've learned in whatever situation I, I am in to be Content, we've translated it. 
And he's, he goes on to describe it in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And, and it, again, it sounds like he's just quoting Stoic philosophers word for word. One guy uh, writing around the same time said that the wise person will develop virtue, whether in riches or in poverty, in his own country or in exile, as commander or as soldier, whether healthy or sickly. It doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in. It doesn't matter what circumstances surround you. You are not in need because you have learned by the stoic way of life to be self-sufficient. But Paul takes the stoic language and the stoic ideal of self-sufficiency, of contentment, and he completely up ends it in verse 13. I have learned, I have learned, I can do all things, which in context means more like I can endure all things. It's, he's not saying he could, you know, fly because of Jesus. He's saying I can endure all things, whether abundance or deprivation. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's something that no Stoic would say. Right? No Stoic whose highest ideal was to be fully contained within themselves, to need nothing, to be distanced enough rationally from all the things that their heart grabs onto that, that it's, it's far enough away as to be easily dismissible. No Stoic would say, I can do all of that because there's something outside of me, some strength that is greater than mine, some person that is greater than me that gives me the strength, that gives me the foundation to face the world in this way. See what I'm saying? The Stoic says, I have everything I need. I can do all things through me who strengthens me. And Paul says, I can face all of this through the one who strengthens me, the one outside of, my, of himself. One commentator on this passage wrote that the Stoic and Paul both stand upright and fearless before a persecuting world one with a look of rigid, defiant scorn or contempt, and the other with a face lighted up with the unutterable joy of God. You see the difference? The gospel transforms our understanding of self-sufficiency because what it means to have enough is radically changed because of Jesus. The gospel takes our sufficiency and it takes it outside of ourselves and places it on someone else, someone outside of ourselves, someone bigger than us. It relocates it in God, the one who gives me strength, as Paul puts it. See, the gospel tells us I mean, the first lesson of the gospel is that we are not sufficient. We are not enough to save ourselves, right? It, it's hard to come to God with this perspective of, God, I need you to save me, and also I'm just fine on my own, thanks. I'm enough. The very first lesson of the gospel is you are not enough. I am not enough in and of myself to fix, to repair, to 
even to reintegrate and understand myself and who I am. I am not enough apart from God's grace first working in my life. I mean, that's lesson number one. The gospel pulls us out of our own sense of self-sufficiency by just showing us we need him. Then, of course, the next lesson that we tend to learn is that we can't provide for ourselves either. Like, we're, we're not enough to get all the things we think that we need or the things that we want. Often, God gives us the opportunity to try and then watches as we either succeed and find out it's still not enough or fail and finally turn to Him to see if He's enough. Either way, I mean, common sense should tell us this one because none of us are able to make all of our wildest dreams come true, as hard as we try. But the gospel teaches us, look, we're not even enough to provide for ourselves, much less save ourselves. We can't provide for ourselves. We have to look to God already. We have to look outside of ourselves already for salvation, for provision. And we even have to learn, we have to look outside of ourselves for strength. Paul says in light of what this world throws at us, I've, I've learned the secret. I've been initiated into the human condition of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Even facing all of that, he says, I can only do... I can only endure because of the one who strengthens me. The strength has to come from the outside. We're not even strong enough in ourselves. Now, maybe we're strong enough to stand in the storm or look at the world and say, bring it on. But we're not strong enough to mean it. Because even if we've written off everything around us, we still then look to ourselves to find affirmation or security or self-love. We still look somewhere and looking to yourself to give yourself significance or love or acceptance is like trying to pay your bills with monopoly money. I mean, eventually you realize it's insufficient. So Paul says, look, look, at what, look at what the gospel does to having enough. He's able to say, I've learned in whatever situation. I've learned how to be brought low. I've learned how to be lifted up. I've learned how to go hungry, and I've learned how to go full. I've learned how to have everything I need and nothing I need. And I've learned all of it. I've learned how to do it because of the one who strengthens me. And I'm convinced he's telling us this, not because he's boasting, but because he's inviting us to learn the same thing. Now, the bad news is there's no class for this. Paul doesn't say, I learned that. He says, I learned how. I learned how by going through it. The classroom experience isn't enough. I mean, we could, we could boil down the lesson uh, to this. Here's the lesson. Because of the transformative power of the gospel, you have all of the resources you need to face any situation in life, whether provision or deprivation, with grace and strength because of Jesus. That's the lesson. And now we've learned it. Great. I wish. Now, 
Paul learned it by practice, by experience, by being put in situations where he's lifted up and exalted and faced the temptation to think that that's where life really has meaning, being recognized. He learned it by going through situations where he had nothing, where he had nothing that he needed and no one to share it with, and he had to go face the temptation of thinking, well, this is where life gets meaningless. I think God's willing to teach us the same lesson by putting us through the same kind of things, by giving us the opportunity to face abundance. And some of you are like, yes, please, I would like that very much, thank you. He's going to give us the opportunity, some of us, to face abundance and face the temptation that comes with it, the temptation that our credit card can make us happy. He's going to give some of us the opportunity to face deprivation, having nothing, and give us the opportunity to face the temptation to forsake him, to go after stuff, things, money, whatever, to make us happy. He's going to put some of us through incredible blessing so that we'll learn to rely on him. He's going to put some of us through incredible suffering so that we learn to rely on him. In every situation, in any circumstance, whether in abundance or need, whether we go hungry or go full, we'll have the opportunity to learn by practice, by repetition, by experience what Paul learned. We can endure all things, all situations, all circumstances because of and through the one in vital relationship with the one who gives us strength. Man, I wish that there were a connection class for that, that you could just go to the class, put in your 10 weeks, and be like, yep, got it. No need to send the hard stuff, God. I have it figured out. But it's not what he's promised. He's promised to teach us, not to shield us. This is how the gospel transforms having enough, because in any circumstance we find ourselves in, we can go back to God and our relationship with Him through Jesus and say, even if I have nothing else, He is enough. That's an incredibly hard thing to say. I know that's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing for me to say in my life, and I have not endured the suffering that many of you have endured and that many of you are going through. But Paul's promise doesn't change. God is enough. And if we have him, we can be thankful for what we have. Now, if that teaching weren't hard enough, now he goes on to flip our understanding of what friendship means, of what it means to have then the people, the community that we, we share it with. Uh, it goes on in verses 14 through 20. Paul gets back to his main point, right? He was starting this paragraph, really 10 through 20 is one big paragraph. He was starting it by saying, thank you, I'm so thankful 
to see the evidence of the revival of your concern for me. And then he digresses and say, not that I'm speaking in need, but you know, I've been content and you could be, and anyway. And he comes back to you and says, yet, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's like, don't, don't misunderstand all that. I really do appreciate the gift. I really do appreciate the concern. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And then he elaborates on their relationship in verses 15, 16, 17. And right there at the end of 15, I want you to focus on this one phrase. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You see that no other church has the kind of relationship that we have. And Actually, the historical record, if you were to look at the book of Acts, uh, it, it bears this out. You know, Acts is that recording of a lot of Paul's journeys and church, the, his relationships with the churches in other places, Thessalonica, Corinth, places like that. He, he made it a point to work with his hands, to provide for himself and teach on the side. But in Philippi, his housing, his salary, it was all taken care of. So he could focus 100% on what he was there to do, plant and build this church. And even after he left to go plant other churches, they continued sending money to him. It's the only church that he has this kind of relationship with. And it's actually a very specific kind of relationship that because we don't swim in the cultural background that they swam in, it probably goes right over our heads. It certainly went right over my head until I started studying it. When he says partnership in giving and receiving, that's technical language for the highest form of friendship in Greco-Roman culture. So, philosophy 102, what do we mean by friendship in Greco-Roman culture? Well, there were three different levels of friendship. Everybody agreed on this. Level number one, the lowest level, was simply useful friendships. Right, you were friends with someone to the extent that being their friend got you things. Right, our modern equivalent is sucking up to the boss who's responsible for our promotion. Uh, attaching yourself to whatever social circle is on the ascendancy or has power in whatever situation you find yourself in. Uh, it's the equivalent of liking a thousand people on Instagram so that they'll follow you back. Right, that's the lowest form of friendship, useful friendship. You're in it because of what you can get out of it. Usually tangibly get out of it. Second form of friendship, middle friendship, was based on pleasure, not based on usefulness like the lowest, but based on pleasure. In other words, yeah, we're friends because I enjoy spending time with you. We share some of the same interests. We enjoy one another's company. I don't walk away from time with you exhausted. But like we give each other life. And this is good. This is a, a good kind of friendship, but it only goes so far as good feelings, right? And when good feelings gone, we move on. Many of our friendships, maybe most of our friendships are in this category. We're committed to the other person as long as being their friend is easy. The third form of friendship, the highest form of friendship was friendship based on virtue. That's the language that was used, or friendship based on goodness. In other words, instead of being loyal to what the person could do for you, or loyal to how the person made you feel, in this highest level of friendship, you are loyal to the person themselves. Regardless of how they feel or what they can give you, you're loyal to them. At least that's how friendship in this time period started. 
but it started to get attached to certain social expectations, expectations of giving and receiving. In fact, uh, one historian calls this kind of friendships contractual friendship. The highest form of friendship was essentially contractual. So I give you a gift because we are friends in this highest sense. I give you a gift. You are so grateful for the gift, you give me another gift back and maybe just a little bit more. Well, now I'm in your debt. I have to pay you back. So I give you another gift and probably just a little bit more because I want to show you know, how generous I am. So I give you and a little bit more, and now you are in my debt. So you give back to me a gift of equal value or perhaps just a little bit more. And what was called the beautiful competition at the time period escalates into maybe not so beautiful competition. And it's different than a way we would think about it now. When I met my best friend in college, a guy named Caleb, we roomed together for four years. First time we went out and got pizza or something like that, he paid and I tried to pay for my half. He was like, no, 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 no. No, look, by the time we get done with college, if I pick up some and you pick up some, we'll be even. Real friends don't keep track. Except in Greco-Roman culture, real friends keep track. That's how you know it's a real friendship because I give to you, you give back to me, but then it gets destructive and competitive. And eventually, when one of us can't pay the other back, ha now I know I'm the highest and you're somewhere down here. And what was a friendship based on goodness becomes a competition to find out who's greater than the other. And Paul writes into this context of the Philippian church and says, you are the only church with which I have ever formed this kind of contractual friendship. You're the only church that I have joined, who has joined with me in the matter of giving and receiving. You guys are the only ones. You're the only ones where we have this back and forth of providing for one another, of giving to one another, of taking care of one another. But Paul could never pay them back. Remember, he's in prison. He's in prison with very little resources to his name to the extent where uh, Epaphroditus made, what was it, an 800-mile journey with however much money with him to take care of Paul's needs and make sure his needs were being met in, in prison because the, uh, the penal system didn't take care of prisoners. Friends and family did. Paul says, you are the only church with which I have a partnership of equals, even though you're the ones who do all the giving and I do all the receiving. How? because the gospel completely upends the way we think about having enough and having people to share it with. Look what Paul goes on to do in these succeeding verses. Verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift. He's like, look, I'm not after more money. I'm not saying this. I'm not reminding you of our past in order to get you to send more gifts. I'm not, I'm not about the gift. What I love is the what the gift shows me, that you are growing in Christ, that there's fruit in your life that is maturing, that is increasing to your credit. It's a commercial term. Friendship in the Greco-Roman age had adopted many of these commercial terms, credit and debit, who owed what to who, who was going to be paid in full, who was going to pay back. He says, look, I mean, even the spiritual fruit that is evidenced by your gift is to your credit. I owe you even more now. And then he piles on all these words for how fully he's been paid. I've received full payment and more. I have been filled up and am overflowing. 
is what he's actually saying. I'm, I'm well supplied. I have everything I need. I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. But notice, he reclassifies the gift. He changes the nature of their gift from being all about material support for him to being about spiritual health in them. The end of verse 18, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, look, when you gave to me, I know you just thought you were giving a material gift, but you were actually making a spiritual sacrifice, a spiritual offering, the kind of, of generosity, of sacrificial generosity that just makes God smile with delight. It's the same kind of smile that's on your face when your kids stop fighting over the cookies and start giving them to one another. You're like, thank you, finally. You just are excited to see the generosity that they're showing. You say, this, this is what your gift is to me. It's, it's evidence of generosity. It's a sacrifice that God finds pleasing. And then he makes a promise. Actually, I don't think he's making a promise. I think he's stating a fact. My God, he says in verse 19, my God, which is the same as their God, it's, it's our, we, we, he, they're worshiping the same God, he says, but, but my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's using all the familiar commercial language and terminology of the highest form of friendship, of of equal reciprocal giving and receiving, and says, you have given me so much. Don't forget, God will also supply all of your needs. Now, in our more cynical age, we could tend to read Paul and say, nice move, Paul. I see what you did there. You guys give to me, Jesus will pay you back. This is good. That's not what Paul's doing. He's not trying to manipulate them. Notice that what he says is coming after the gift, not before. If you are watching Sunday morning programming and the guy on the screen says, send in your 10% and God will multiply it beyond your imagination, he's not putting you in the position where you're giving to him or sacrificing for him. He's putting you in the position where you're giving to yourself just at a delay. Give to me and God will give you even more is just, that's not a sacrificial offering. That's like buying a 10-year bond and just waiting for the, the interest to pay off. That's not the kind of giving Paul is talking about here. Look, he, he's very legitimately saying, it, it, both at the same time, he's saying, thank you for the gift. It, it has, it is provided for my need even when I'm in this this place in my relationship with Christ where I've realized I can go through anything, having a need or not having these needs, I can go through all of it because of Jesus. But thank you for the gift. And thank you even more because the gift shows how much you are growing, how much your relationship with God is bearing fruit. Thank you for the gift. I, I know it puts me in your debt. And I can never pay you back, but God will supply all of your needs. This is how the gospel transforms the relationships we have with one another. 
because no longer do we have to have everything back in equal measure in order for it to be a true partnership, a true friendship. Now, even unequals, those with wealth and those without, those able to give love and those not able to respond in love, those who are able to sacrifice and those who choose not to or are unable to, even they can have an equal friendship because both have been given equally and freely of the grace of God. Greco-Roman friendship could never existed. The highest form could not exist between unequals. They came flat out and said it. An older person cannot have a friendship, a true friendship, a high friendship with a younger person. They're not equals. Someone with money cannot be friends with someone without money. They're not equals. They can't go back and forth and give back and forth to each other. Only equals, and it helps if you're rich, could have this kind of friendship. And Paul says, no, look, the gospel has transformed our friendships, our partnerships, our giving and receiving because the benefits we share in the gospel are not purely material. They're not solely competitive. The gospel has taken their friendship and transformed it from a a money-focused, who's greater and who's lesser, competitive friendship quote-unquote, to a grace-oriented, who's growing spiritual partnership. The gospel has transformed friendship from being competitive to cooperative. It's, It's taken our friendship from a place where I have to get back from you in order to feel good about giving to you. So in few moments we have left this morning. What are we going to do with this? We're all familiar. Most of us, I think, are familiar with with the verses in this. We kind of pull them out and we're like, oh man, through Jesus, I can do all things. He gives me the strength, which is usually our way of saying, I'm feeling very inadequate right now. If Jesus would give me a little more strength, maybe I could do something great for him. It's the exact opposite of what Paul's saying with those words. He's saying, I don't have anything right now, or I have everything right now. Because of Jesus, I can go through that. What's your perspective on your stuff? What's your perspective on the things that you have? You know, that stoic ideal of self-sufficiency is not a dead-and-gone idea. It's still very much alive in our society. You may be the kind of modern-day Stoic who sells everything that doesn't spark joy, moves into a tiny house, and says utterly inane things like, the journey is the destination. You're like, if I just got rid of my stuff, if I just divested myself of all these attachments, I would finally be enough in myself. Or you might be the more modern-day kind of stoic, who says, well, you win some and you lose some. I guess that's just the way it is. I'm not going to let it affect me because it doesn't matter what happens. I've got me and I'm fine. It doesn't matter which kind of stoic you are. The more you push away or the more you get rid of stuff, I mean, eventually your world gets so small that there's not even enough room for you to stand in it. Paul says, I can face all of that. I can go with having everything and having nothing because there is someone outside of me who gives me a place to stand and face all of that. What about you? 
how are you finding the strength to face what life throws at you? If you're like me, every time you have an emotionally difficult day, you hit the bookstore on the way home. Maybe more knowledge will make me feel better about myself. It's a very unique form of, of social psychosis that I have. Um, so hopefully you're not like me, but you've got your own. You've gone to the store on the way home and thought, mm, maybe haagen will make me feel better. Maybe a new outfit will make me feel better. Maybe a new marriage will make me feel better. Whatever it's been, I mean, we, how do you feel about the things you have? Is Jesus enough? And what about the people that you share it with? Are you only able to love those who can respond to your love in kind? Maybe even give you a little more? Are we only able to sacrifice for the people who will sacrifice right back for us? Are we only able to, to give of ourselves to people that we're reasonably confident will at some point in the future give back to us? Or can we really be friends? Even with people who frustrate us and hurt us and drain us dry because we, just like them, have received grace from God that we could never repay. This last weekend, we were uh, driving back from a family wedding, and our, our route took us through Waterloo, Iowa, which is where my wife Jenna's grandmother uh, is living out her last days. She's in her high 90s and living at Friendship Village, uh, an assisted living center, and her life has been a study in being in want, and being in need. The entirety of her married life, she was married to a fundamentalist Baptist preacher who was just scraping by on a, on a pastor's salary of a couple hundred dollars a month and a, whatever parsonage the church could put together for him. And eight kids. I think it was eight. Is it eight? Yep, eight kids. Still can't believe it. Um, We stopped to see her because she doesn't have that much time left and it's important for us to, to get the time when we have it. And we were just, we were thankful that she was awake, she was alert, but the entirety of her life has come down to about 100 square feet, 10 by 10. She has memories on the wall. I'm not sure she actually knew who we were or how we were related. She knew we were part of, I mean, with eight kids, there's a lot to keep track of, and I probably wouldn't be able to keep track of it either, but uh, I mean, her memory's going, and sometimes she's back in her 20s, and sometimes she's here today. I think she was here today when we met with her, uh, but we had a great time just talking for a few minutes, trying not to tire her out, and then uh, we prayed together. We said, Grandma, can we pray for you before we leave? So we all knelt down and held hands, and, and I started praying, and it was fluff. I mean, I meant it. Um, thank you that Grandma is here, that she's well taken care of. Thank you for the, the nurses that are caring for her. Caring for her. Thank you uh, that she's awake and alert and can interact with us. Thank you for the safety you've given to us and give us peace on the way home. And I said amen and started to stand up, and then Grandma started praying. And she said, Father... It's so good just to know you. 
And I pray that my kids and my grandkids will know you too. There's nothing more that we need than you. And I, I mean, Jen and I are crying, and we're looking at her grandmother, who has nothing and very few people to share it with, and she says, it's so good just to know you. And we walked out, and we were driving away, and I told Jen, I'm like, I wish I could pray like that. And also, I don't want to go through what, the, what she went through in order to learn how to pray like that. I don't want to grow up and watch kids walk away from the faith. I don't want to see children die young. I don't want to see churches hurt me and my family. I don't want to see us constantly needing, constantly in need, not knowing where the next thing's going to come from. I don't want us to hit 65 and have no retirement and no way to take care of ourselves. I don't want any of that. But I want to know that God is enough and that when he's enough, we have enough. So, what do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with all the things we have that we want more of? What do we do with all the friends that we have and wish we had more who want to be our friends? Can you take the gospel this week and apply it to your stuff and the people you share with it and come out with, Jesus is enough? That's my prayer for me, it's my prayer for us, and I'm just thankful that with you all, whatever we go through, to learn that lesson, at least we get to learn it together. Let's pray. Father, you have given us more than enough. I confess to you, Lord, I do not like the idea that I have what I need because you have promised that you will provide all of our needs according to your riches in keeping with the, the incredible riches, the incredible wealth that you possess, you will pay back and more. Lord, I don't know if you're going to meet our needs today. I don't know if you're going to meet our needs tomorrow or if the things that we want, that we think are needs, will never be met at all. But I do know that you have already in Jesus met every one of our ultimate and final needs. And that one day all the riches that are yours through him will be our inheritance. And we will be at rest knowing that we have you and you are all we need. Father, give us a glimpse of who you are now, today. And let us seek to know you more. In Jesus' name.